Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello and welcome to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Rob Charon. Rob runs Stealth Monitoring. Rob, say hello and introduce yourself. Hey, John. Yeah, Rob Charon. Nice to meet you all. Uh, born and raised uh, as a Canadian, uh, now living in the States. Uh, built Stealth Monitoring now for, for 12 years. Uh, we're uh, one of the largest remote video monitoring companies now in the world, let alone North America, with about 2,000 employees in 40 cities and four countries. Wow. So you founded the company, you were your original founder. So it's a little bit of a unique story. Uh, I did entrepreneurship through acquisition coming out of Stanford Business School. So I found an entrepreneur uh, in Toronto running a, a small 50 person construction video surveillance business in 2011 and bought a majority of his business with investors I had found. Uh, and my business partner, who's our chief revenue officer and president, uh, we've took that business and kind of grew at a 35% compounded annual growth rate over 12 years to, to kind of where it is today. Wow. It's, so it, it's, it's fabulous to hear success stories like that because, but, but I suspect it, it doesn't, that sounds like a Stanford business plan. Like, yeah, we'll just grow 35% a year. Perfect. Yeah. Um, walk me, walk me through what that 35% looked like. Was it, was there a year at, negative 10 was there was there a was there was there a big hockey stick year where you said yeah the average 35 but really it was it was like this or um you know uh, we got we got hurt here how did how did that play out yeah um it's like a business is like a child right sean so it's a miracle i still have no gray hairs after what we went through but uh you know there, there's all sorts of things right so uh we had an inflection point, I guess, even a couple years in where we had thought we were buying a brick and mortar security company. And that would be kind of growing steady eddy, cash flowing and, and more traditional. And before you know it, we're growing twice as fast as we thought we would. And growth costs money, right? You have to hire, you have to install, you have to service, you have to spend on equipment. And um, we started spending more money than we were making. And so I guess the first inflection point of stress was probably within two years where my CFO was like, we have maybe 60 days of runway before we run out of money. And it's, it's a good place to be in our case, because you could slow down growth, right? You could, you could, but that's no fun. But then you go to investors and they're like, well, you sold us a brick and mortar story. Uh, what is this? We, there's no dividend checks in this yeah, who, one. Who are you today? Yeah. And, and so it took us about a year to kind of find ourselves and you know we did some bridge financing and and then we kind of did a reshuffle amongst our investors to say okay we're going to stop talking about cash flow for the time being and we're really going to get our focus on growth and so that that was you know an interesting kind of period where where it was quite stressful trying to kind of figure out what is the right strategy for our business right you, you in a lot of ways you learn cash is king but then you also want to grow because the business is so small and so um, you know, there's kind of just, it's a little bit of strategic discussions and looking for mentorship and trying to figure out what the right path is. Then, in, um, you know, now, then we were out Canadian. And so it's, you know, how do we expand? Like, it sounds so easy, but imagine like 
trying to go into Quebec where there's language police and everything has to be in French and your one hundred number has to be French. And then you move into the States and you have to have way different type of insurance and operating companies and taxes, intercompany transfers and work visas. And, and so there was always kind of called stressors or inflection points. Um, one thing we had the benefit of was a recurring monthly revenue business that had the wind at its back, meaning the industry was growing. Um, and so that kind of helped us sustain kind of a steady eddy, call it 15 to 40% year over year growth at, in any given year. But we and definitely just, had more precipitous cash flow times more than this is This is gross revenue growth, not net profit growth. That's right. That's okay, right. Great. Yeah. So the market was, yeah. was helping out that way. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because the net profit, I guess I was trained, you know, I worked at McKinsey and Company, Morgan Stanley, Stanford Business School. So I, I, I was trained in like pretty significant financial engineering and understanding how cash flows can work. And, and so I guess I looked at the alarm industry, right? And I was like, okay, if you're charging $30 a month for your alarm system, but but it's costing them maybe three years worth of monthly revenue to install it, do the sale, to but then actuarially it's going to last eight point four years, and they're working at a really high margin. After year three, they're like making their money back, right? right. And so it's very similar in my model where you're spending a lot to kind of call it create the customer, but then you know a couple years in you're starting to receive the cash flow, but that's a pretty big bet in terms of your investors having to believe in you, your banks having to believe in you and candidly your employees, right? And and because you, you are ending up being either negative neutral or negative free cash flow uh, in a lot of cases when it comes to like the P&L. And, and, and so very few earnings, if you'll call it, other than kind of the unit economics. So how much in that model, how much did you have to safeguard or um, be aware of Guys, we got to get out of the gate strong so we start well with these people because we start on rocky soil and lose them after eight months because they hate us. We just, we just, uh, we put a turd in the punch bowl on that one. How, how, how much of that was, how did, how did you optimize for that? Yeah, I'd say it's um, educated risk taking, right? So, so we kept focused. Okay, let's not be everything to everyone, let's focus on not more than a handful of industries. In our case, it was car dealerships, construction sites, scrap metal yards, apartment buildings, and really, really get to know that pain point of the customer and exactly how we can service that call it customer journey. And we have about 72 customer journey touch points and, and make sure that we're optimizing so that we are having very low attrition, high net promoter score, and call it a good customer service experience. Right. Easier said than done at scale. But um, that's always been our call customer centric goals. And that's always been a key indicator of our success, right? Our customers leaving us or not. Yep. So was that, um, I'm always curious what companies scale for, like, or how you define or measure scale. What, what, uh, what were your, you can, you can define it more than one way, but what were you, how were you measuring scale in that kind of a model? So I look at scale and say, okay, if we continue to grow revenue, we can do a lot of really cool things, right? We can become the 
leader in IoT device monitoring. We could continue to protect people and assets across the world. And, and so my aspirations are always like bigger is better, right? Because you just have so many more resources. Like, yeah. uh, you, like in, in our example, you know, the business I bought 12 years ago had 50 people. Now we have 50 developers and de developer related resources, just software people and hardware people. And so they're refining, creating really cool futuristic stuff that's like bettering us in the industry, right? And so when I think of scale, one of the best books I had read was The Four Disciplines of Execution. And that's by, uh, you know, Chris McKenzie, Jim Hewling, and, and uh, Sean Covey. And it really allows for like an entrepreneurial operating system um, to execute on the most important priorities. And so I think of a company as teams of teams of teams of teams. And so by assigning each of your teams or people, call it wildly important goals to scale, and then defining those targets in very quantitative ways, like X to Y by when. And again, it has to be very quantitative. You're at X, you're going to get to Y by when. Then you can really focus and scoreboard their success to scale. And you can also understand the, the issues of why they're not getting there. Um, and then you can also then hold accountability and all that type of stuff. So... The X yeah. to Y model then becomes a beta or a, or like a tutorial. And then you say, we've perfected it well enough. Now we can throw gas on the fire. Yeah, like what's next? And and, and employee communication changes over scale, right? So uh, you want to keep things fun. So when I first started, it was dollars. I talked about, oh, we grew $3 million, right? But, but not everyone appreciates revenue isn't profit. And so you start talking dollars and some people love it some people think it's wacky and not great so then i switched to cities oh we're, we opened up six new cities this year right but then you get like 40 cities and you can't even put it all on the screen and you get it it's just so then you switch to people and so we're like oh we're now we hired a thousand people this year like you know and and again then it starts to feel like well is people the right thing because you don't want to you want to have cost controls it shouldn't just be celebrating hiring people and, and so now we've switched to cameras. Oh, we're watching this number of cameras. And so I think it's really important um, that a business has some sort of metric towards scale that people can celebrate and kind of have goals and understand what we're trying to aspire to over, call it a three-year plan. Yeah, that's that's interesting. The first one, the, the money one, I've been in companies where that that, that was, it's, an, it's a very common metric. And the, what I've found is that people say, if we're getting all this money, why aren't I getting more? Why don't I have a bigger salary? Why don't a guy get a bonus? We we hit three million. Shouldn't we pay everybody a bonus? You go, no, we're still we're still bleeding cash. <laughs> so it's, right. it's a, like, it becomes a mixed message. You say, yeah, we're killing it. Oh, but we're still losing money. You go, wow, am I going to lose my job? Then and people, the theory being, in the absence of a story, people insert one. <laughs> they say, uh oh, we're making money, but. We're making revenue, but we're losing money. I could lose my job. No, we didn't say that. Uh, yeah. So, so is is the switching the the broadcasting or the communicating is that just to keep the game fresh, or is it? Have you um, have you found the one that resonates with people the most? I think it's both. I think people everything gets stale over time, right? Yeah. It call it, I'm going to call it continuous improvement, right? And and therefore the 
you want to keep things as simple as possible, but if you can kind of create new goals with potentially different metrics, it can keep things really fresh. Um, and it can give people like an aspiration or a goal. I think it also has to be something that is to your point is tangible and exciting. So to say, Hey, we're going to go from 1000 cameras to 2000 cameras, like, you know, but if you're, Hey, we're going to go from 50,000 to a hundred thousand, like, okay, that's kind of cool. Right. And so I think you have to also understand the absolute and kind of empathize with, okay, how would people react to this? Right. Going from six cities to 12 cities is a lot cooler than going from 40 to 44. Um, and so you kind of just have to pivot as you kind of think to yourself, does this actually make sense or is it actually exciting anymore? And a lot of the times it's just creating a scoreboard, right? You, people want to know if they're winning or losing and you kind of want to keep them in the slight green, right? Like no one likes to be on a losing team. Being too good also means people can get complacent. So you always want to be stretching, but you always want people to feeling, you know, good when they wake up with their coffee in the morning. Oh, that's great. So um, that brings up for me the idea of having some sort of a chip on your shoulder. Do you, do you create chips or or people call them BHAGs? I don't care for that so much, but um, do you create a chip on your shoulder like internally where you say, guys, we were able to lift 100 pounds yesterday. Why can't? what would it take for us to live a, uh, lift 120 this, this month? Do you, do you play that kind of internal chip with, with your team? I wouldn't say it's, I'd say it's more, it's, 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 a, it's a very authentic chip, meaning as a CEO, call it CEO founder uh, and board member, you, you take things very personally. So when things aren't going well, and there's always things not going well if you're, call it like we've tripled in size in three years, right? So every process and every person is bogged down. Got right? blown up, yeah. And and so you have a lot of chips because there are a lot of chips broken. And so you it's it's actually much more authentic where you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like this is accountability. It's either process, people, or technology, or all three, but let's get this fixed because this is call it unacceptable. Right. And so it's, 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 it's the last thing you want to do is complain to complain and the last, even constructive feedback. Right. I'd say it's more about, okay, like how do we prioritize these issues and really make sure that we're actually getting them fixed as opposed to just band-aiding. Right. So there's a, there's a theory, uh, amongst, uh, it may be in the media, but I like it at some level, but I'm curious your take that scaling is much, um, much easier with either a cool or fun factor in the, in the culture fair, or is that, is that needed? Oh, interesting. Can you, can you give me an example or elaborate? Um, yeah, for instance, people give the, people give the, um, examples of dumpster fire cultures, take Uber or WeWork. There was enough of uh, we're inventing an industry. This is cool. This is cutting edge. I can brag to my friends that it kept people in the game when they realist, especially women, should have just said, I am so out of here. And here's my attorney's card. We're suing you for misogyny. But there was enough of a cool in that in that case, there was enough of a cool factor that people said, I want to be here when we when we finally go public or when we all get, uh, when this all pays off. I'm, you know, 
to me, it, it, it a little bit sounds like um, uh, three-star Michelin food at a prison. You go, well, you're, you're at WeWork and it's horrible, or you're at Uber and it's a horrible culture, but can the cool factor or the fun factor scale a company? And I'm, I'm torn. That's why I'm asking. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to go back to authentic leadership, right? So in, in those cases, um, you know, Travis and Adam uh, had, had very strong personalities and, and they led yeah. in that direction and, and it worked really well. Um, but it was authentic and, and people could get a, their heads around that. So for us, um, I think everyone at, at Stealth want, believes in the cause, right? We, we, we are saving people's lives. We have stories every week of, of protecting people or assets, say like legitimately, like, and I, it's really emotional, right? So there's an emotional connection. Then you have this growth. So it's like, oh, as a career development, I know that if the business triples in three years, there's probably some sort of career development for me, yeah. right? Yeah. And and so like people want to be part of a winning story. And then you bring in storytelling, right? So we had a lot during COVID of, of call it perseverance or complex, you know, com very complex issues. Uh, for example, our Philippines office, right? And there was a community shutdown. So you have hundreds of employees now living in dorms and hotels, commuting to work every day, and then living in those hotels and dorms, not seeing their family for months. And they're cooking on rooftops with like little Bunsen burners and doing their laundry. Okay. And then you hear North Americans complaining about what's going on. You're like, guys, they're saying, um, yeah, I've yeah. watched everything on Netflix already. It's really boring. And you go, okay, right. You and no and but, but those stories are so inspiring to, to everyone. Like I'm, I almost get to tears when I think about it. Right. And that's where I think people really connect with the business and connect with the cause and connect with each other and will actually go beyond because they, they, they see others doing the same and it's, it's quite inspiring and contagious. Wow. That, uh, so for me, that would be a cool factor. It's not quite cool, but you just say, how, how can I quit on my Philippine, uh, brethren? If they went through that, yeah, you know, we got to keep we got to keep this thing going. Yeah, yeah, like like failure is not a possibility. Like end stop. Well, we're complaining. I imagine it must have just killed all complaining or most of it in other markets where you just say, "Come on, guys, uh, you're at home with a you, you got a nice you got big screen TVs, a t television in your room, you got DoorDash, and you're complaining about this." Yeah, okay, so you got to work out at home. Yeah, that that. That's funny. That's funny. Um, the um, there's another theory that the company can only scale at the same or slower pace than the CEO scales their own capability or competence. Fair or no? Does the CEO have to be out in front? Um, like, do you have to be exponentially better? every year as a CEO to be able to lead a scaling team or, or can you, can the team drive you as opposed to you drive the, not you drive the team, but you lead the team. Interesting. Um, so I think everyone needs to interview for their job every year. Uh, and I do think that like any, everything, you know, everyone scales out or skills up or, or not. Right. And, and that so includes, that includes you. 
Of course, of course. Yeah, start, maybe uh, it starts with you. Yeah. And I, I think, right? Like everyone has their value chain, I'll call it. And 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 so I think it would be insanity if if the CEO wasn't leading by example of call it continuous improvement, skill increasing, coaching development, right? I, I have a life coach, I have a therapist, like I have all this, like, of course I do. Like, are you kidding? If you're a pro player on a basketball team, you don't have a someone helping you train? Like, of right, course you, have you do. You a strength coach, you have a nutrition coach, you have a stretching coach, you have a sleep coach. Yeah, you got all you those. mentors, like, and, and it's naive of you to think like that you shouldn't, right? And so right. Um, I think if you're, if you, chill your company will chill and and i i think it's it's not it's not that people are watching you it's more just like they're watching the the speed or the 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 call it the capacity that you want to take on right as as a business now what i will say is there are different types of leaders so uh you know i had won uh canada's top 40 under 40 a couple of years ago and they did psychometric testing on all of us. And vast majority of the, the recipients are hardcore visionary. Yes, don't look at the detail, like, like just kind of entrepreneur minds. And I was actually in, in the minority of an analytical thinker who probably says no more than yes, who's somewhat risk averse, right? Like all these call it metrics. Um, that might have been from all my institutional training in my 20s, but I would say that I put members on my team that I really want to push me. Like my business partner, our president and chief revenue officer, Eric, he's way more aggressive than me, right? Our, our CFO, Max, is really aggressive. And I love that because I might be steady Eddie, but they're like here and it brings me here. And, and it's a very healthy cadence. And the last thing I'd want is everyone to be here and here because we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't pull off half the stuff we're able to pull off. Yeah, that's interesting. Because if you were way out there as well, it, it, it's, uh, it's too volatile. And if they were too steady Eddie, you guys would be 10% growth. You don't want either one. That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, you talked about um, risk averse. It's another very um, uh, popular topic, but it's a hot topic. Is scaling more um, achievable by managing and, if you will, limiting risk, or by, uh, in poker terms, going in, you know, uh, swashbuckler, gun people call them gunslingers. It's it's the it's the Elon Musk version of CEO where you just say, yeah, we'll just I'll just do this that or that, and you go really, which is, I mean, obviously you have you have a personal style, but. What's your thoughts on managing risk in order to maximize growth? Yeah. So, 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 you know, again, I grew up as a value investor, right? Billy Graham, Warren Buffett type guy. So a lot of what I was taught until I'll call it went to Stanford was cash is king, margin of safety. Right. Um, and then Living in Silicon Valley for a couple of years, it's like the opposite. It's like I'm, growth I'm, in the I'm there now. I still, I still live here. Yeah. Um, like build the future, right? Uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a funny balance. Uh, I'd say 
it's it's kind of a couple lessons. One is you need to make sure that you have a backup plan, right? So for us in 2019, I brought in private equity partners because I was at the time at 35 high net worth individuals as our financial backing. But, you know, things went really bad. Like you need so much capital would be a stretch, right? right. And, they'd, all, they'd all be in the same boat. <laughs> right. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have a private equity fund and they're like, hey, we have we have your back, right? We're putting a lot of and so it, it, it reduces your call it risk because you've um, you, you know, the business now has a backup plan if if there's capital issues and you can sleep better at night knowing that like your employees aren't going to have like, like it's not like you could fund it yourself like you could have in 2011. Right. right. And, and so there's that. And then I'd say it's tiptoeing before you dance, right? So for example, the U.S. expansion, we moved into Seattle. Okay, Seattle's good. Now let's buy a business in Dallas. Let's expand, right? In the Philippines, it was like, okay, I'll fly out there. I'll hire four people. Then I'll tell my board I hired four people and ask for forgiveness. And, and four people is not scary. And before you know it, we now have 900 people in the Philippines, right? And, and so I'd say it's, um, it's, it's testing with very like as low resources as possible and then pivoting. And then when you see success, focus and squeeze that, you know, as hard as possible. Um, so that's how we've looked at new verticals. That's how we've looked at product, go to market, uh, all the topics that you'd kind of expect. Hmm. That's interesting. The, one of the ways a swashbuckler CEO but it is the difference between me and someone who manages risk is that I do experiments only looking to prove that we're right. I'm, uh, I don't see that the possibility is the, the, the preference would be to disprove it. That's just as valuable to disprove it. And he said, I'm too, I'm too biased towards, I want this to work that he said, we, we just don't, we don't really look at it. And it's, uh, that's why well, I ask. And, and the costs are much higher, right? So, when you know when when we were deciding on an accounting system for the hundred people, like okay, like we did two days of research. You go. can't make too big of a mistake there. And, yeah. and and now it's like, oh wow, ERP needs needs to talk to our CRM, needs to talk to, our, and you have consultants, and there's probably fifty people involved in these work streams, right? Because you can't get it wrong. It's it'll be multiple years and tens of millions of dollars if you get it wrong, and so. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to choose what decisions you can fail fast on and what decisions you have to go slow and steady. No, I got it. I got it. That's, uh, uh -huh. um, so we our, our, our favorite question for all the CEOs is I have a theory that we could have gone to your junior high school, seventh, eighth grade, and we should have been able to see the signs and go to Vegas at that point and place a futures bet and say, Rob at. 35 will most likely or possibly look like this. Who were you in junior high that the, that the signs were pretty clear that you'd turn out the way you did now? Yeah, it was, I think the signs were unfortunately there for good or for bad. It might be a little bit more polished, but I was, I was pretty nerdy back then. Um, I, well, in, uh, in junior high though, everyone has pimples and braces and puberty and you go, it's not a, it's not a ideal. Most I don't know anybody that says, oh, I love seventh and eighth grade. Everybody says, oh, that was the worst. 
I have a I have a grade eight video of running for students council president, which I won. And I have was, seen this. This is amazing. And I had a hamster running. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm a humanitarian. Like, I'm, I'll bring you pizza lunches every month. I'll bribe you guys. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think, uh, so that, that was a piece, right? I called an insecure overachiever. Um, I remember going to my neighbor who was collecting, would read the Wall Street Journal. And I would say, hey, can I get your journal a day later? And so I would, unlike kids reading the comics, I would read the journal, which was for, wacky. For free a day late. It's like, that's fine. I'm still learning. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I, uh, I had pretty bad speech problems. And so I kind of overcame them by middle school. But I think that was kind of a perseverance situation in elementary school that I kind of felt like putting your mind to things and, and hard work could kind of get you there. So, and you took that on. Well, I got a, my mother was probably the one that really pushed me because I, I thought, I, I didn't realize that I had as much of a problem as my parents did. And so I think they really pushed me. But then once I started realizing it, call it by 10 or 12, I, I kind of pushed myself. And as an example, I was in like uh, gifted math, but not English. And then kind of by grade three to grade six, I was in normal English. And then by grade seven, I was in gifted English. And so it was kind of like a trajectory of like kind of very low skill ability in languages to, to call it above average. And it was about um, speech. It wasn't about writing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I could never still could not explain it. I've talked to a bunch of speech pathologists, but. Uh, uh, and, and there'd be zero trace of that now. You're very articulate and. Uh, and it's 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 fascinating to me that you you took whether your parents you know kind of led the charge or maybe forced you into it a little bit that you you took it on and and dove into it is that is that who you are today that you dive into something like 100 percent yeah i think if i see a problem i i go at it 100 percent. yeah do you do the same with hobbies or fun things like are you obsessive about surfing or are you just obsessing about hella skiing or whatever people do. I, I, I find CEOs, it seems very common that they're like insanely addicted is too strong of a word, but enthusiastic maybe about whatever their, it's not a vice. It, usually it's a hobby or a passion. Are you that way? Uh, yeah, I'd say, um, I'd say like, I'm, I'm, I'm very focused on taking care of myself, right? So that means fitness, at least five times a week. It means eating really healthy, low alcohol intake, uh, those types of things, right? I, I, you just like read enough and you know enough that if you're like, okay, if I want to live over a hundred, well, actuarially, this is what I have to choose to do, right? right? And if you choose right. not to, I can indulge, but that will definitely take years of that off. Um, and, and so I think in a lot of cases, in that example, uh, you know, I'm very focused on it. You know, genetics do play a role, but so does environment. And then from a hobby perspective, I, I think it is like something that you have to take seriously or, or, or I, I do. So I, I'm a big avid skier. I collect Coca-Cola memorabilia and, and um, I don't know, I really enjoy it for, for whatever reasons. And, and uh, I put a lot of time and effort into these types of hobbies. Because I also find it as a release, right? Because of the work can get quite stressful as well and just life in general. It's, so. um, I've, I've heard the term mindless play. And whether that's, like you say, memorabilia or uh, skiing, 
you can't be you can't be working out um, your financing plan while you're on a double black diamond slope. There's just no way. You, so, yeah. Yeah, I think I think like my favorite thing about some of those, whether it's running or skiing or work, whatever the topics are, it's it's you're off the grid. Right. And, and so your mind can calm, right? Or you're, it's like doing yoga. And I think that's really important if you run a high octane life. Um, I've been in six cities in two weeks, right? Like if, if I didn't have that balance, it, I, I'd get very sick very quickly, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, last question, how, how much do you focus or some people obsess on sleep or sleep metrics? I have the aura ring right here. Um, Me too. There you go. There you go. The black one. Yeah. yeah. I, I have the one that's called Stealth because my company's called Stealth. So. Right. You had. You, you didn't have a choice there. Yeah. That they choice. Ended up for hundred dollars, but I had no choice when I saw the name. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't. I don't actually love the wearable cult health metrics. I actually think it can be quite um, distracting right? For a number of reasons. I think learning first, you know, the first six months of this rating was really interesting, right? And I learned probably eight different facts that I didn't realize, but now I know them. And so I try not to look at it as much um, or, or call it track myself. When it comes to sleep, I, I think it's extremely important. I used to be like, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know? Like, uh, I really was like that. I like, you know, trying to like aspire to very few hours sleep and and now I'm like, nope, I, I want my beauty sleep. Uh, I want to get, get a good night's rest. I want to have routine. Um, and I, I think having a nighttime and morning ritual is really important. Um, being kind of uh, keeping away from electronics, I think is, is a huge piece if you can before bedtime and, and, and call it until the morning. Uh, I think water consumption is really important as well. Um, but I, 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 I do take it seriously. I, I've never been that CEO that's like, oh, I wake up at four in the morning and no, nope, I'm, you know, I'm happily going to try to aspire to seven and a half hours sleep, probably get seven and I'm really proud of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, for longevity. It's, it's pretty clear. It, it, I think sleep is going to be the new nutrition, obviously in genetics, but you can't do much about genetics. Um, blame your parents. You can complain about your parents, but uh, uh, we do that already. So uh, yeah. that's great. That's great. Rob, uh, what question about skill or is, what topic about skill would you love to discuss that I didn't ask about? It's a good question. Um, I'd say, uh, you know, there's, there's a big piece around talent, right? Like anyone who's done it has actually not done it. It's other people that have actually done it and they just get the credit for it. Um, so I think talents have been a big piece to call it my meaning or what I'll remember in 20 years from now, right? I'm not going to remember stealth financial metrics and what we did. Like I can remember the relationships I built with customers, suppliers, employees, the friendships, the milestones we've, we've shared, um, babies in the, you know, marriages, whatever the, the topics are. Um, and I think, I think sometimes people focus uh, myopically on, on, on analytical metrics, but I think you can question, everyone has their own reasons, but for me, it's the people that have really driven me and, and have made me feel a lot of meaning in, in, in our success. Hmm. It's, 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 um, 
it's been compared, and I think it's a fair one. People talk about Super Bowl winning quarterbacks as if there weren't 52 other guys on the team. <laughs> if you won three Super Bowls, they say, wow, as if, as if you did it one guy against a team of 11 opposing you. It's like, no, it's not only the quarterback. Uh, and yeah, and CEO is kind of the same thing. They say, oh, yeah, he said, he's, he said two successful companies. And you say, okay, but he didn't do it by himself. It's it's a helpful metric to say, yeah, you need a strong leader. But it's it's all, it always boggles my mind that it's like, he, there's no way to see, it wasn't a solopreneur. <laughs> so, yeah, especially if you're going to scale or have a liquidity event, you got a massive amount of contributors. So including your funding sources and all that. That's right. That's right. And, and how do you come up with extrinsic and intrinsic ways to motivate them? As we now look at acquisitions, how do we think about that? Right? Not partnerships, alignment of interests, all like and and I think that's been a critical key to our success of scaling. Right. We've done a couple tuck-ins. Um, and that's been critical in terms of strategy and power our success. And right. And that that you have to be really proactive in terms of empathizing with what the other parties are going through and, and then how your management team is going through this. And now they have two day jobs and how do you handle that and everything that comes with that type of stuff. Right. Right. Well, Rob, um, as always, uh, thank you to you. We realized, uh, these, this topic of scale can only be discussed by people that are doing it. It's not a university entrepreneur course. It's a, Oh, Rob, Rob lives in the trenches every day. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate you, your candor, your wisdom, your insights. Um, thank you for being for joining us today on Genius at Scale. Thanks, John. Real pleasure. Always great seeing you. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.